Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I have just finished recording an upcoming episode with Professor David O'Keefe. Now, he's one of Canada's top military historians, and he's been spending the last 25 years to figure out why one of the darkest days in Canadian military history ever took place. Now, that's the raid on Dieppe, where over 900 Canadian troops were killed in 1942. Lots of myths and rumours about why Dieppe took place. Was it to try and test Hitler? Perhaps impress Stalin? or just to raise the morale of the British at a time when things were not going well in the war. Well, what I can tell you is that David has figured it out. His new book, One Day in August, ties in Enigma with the stories of Bletchley Park and even Ian Fleming, who would go on to write the Bond novels. It's an amazing episode. Make sure you don't miss it. To do that, you can follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory. You can also like, follow, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in this episode, we're looking at another hidden aspect of the World Wars. This time we're jumping deep into the First World War and exploring the fact that 1.5 million Indians fought with the British during the conflict. From Flanders to the African continent and across the deserts of the Islamic world, Indian soldiers fought in every major campaign. In fact, it could be said that these troops saved the Allies from defeat in 1914 and were vital to global victory in 1918. So, to find out more, Dan Snow chatted with George Morton Jack and Dr. Priya Atwal about the neglected role of the Indian Army during the war. I'm very excited to be sitting uh, here with you two who know more than anybody else on this planet at the moment about India, that you're both flinching, don't worry, I don't mean that, but you know, you've, you've both been so immersed in very, very unusual uh, archives and projects over the last few years, looking at the Indian Army in the First World War, and I'm sorry we're still talking about the First World War, everyone at home, but it, it was big and interesting, and lots of it remains untalked about after four years, so we're going to be doing a little bit. But Priya, tell me a little bit about yours, because it really caught my eye when I read about it. What, what have you been up to? Well, thanks for involving me, first of all, Dan. But the project that I was involved in was a collaboration between the history faculty at Oxford University and the Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum, a small county museum in Woodstock. 
and we were essentially digging deeper into the the previously largely unstudied archives at the Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum uh, relating to the regiment, the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, and their the role of those soldiers and officers in as part well as part of the Indian Army in Mesopotamia, today known as Iraq, in the First World War. So we uncovered a well an incredible stack of photographic albums from the period, some documents and also, you know, regimental records, maps, all sorts of things that documented their experience of serving in the Middle East at that time. And in a particularly controversial um, you know, conflict of the war leading up to the siege of Kut, which was one of the most, most disastrous, you know, battle sieges that the British Army faced during that First World War. And we, we kind of essentially wanted to look into that history because, of course, you know, the role of the Indian Army is, is often, well, not as well known as other sections of the armed forces, but the role of British and Indian forces in the Middle East is even less well studied and, and that people are as aware of in the public domain compared to, say, the Western Front, France, etc. So we wanted to bring these stories to light and, and use this, you know, quietly preserved archive in order to do so. But again, it was also very much about bringing the local community into this project from the outset. So we recruited British Asian volunteers from different ages and backgrounds, Hindu, Sikh and Muslim, as well as military history volunteers from that museum to interpret this collection. And uh, the result was a, a really lovely travelling exhibition that spread across Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire museums, showcasing that new research. And obviously you're interested in the soldiers' experience in themselves, the, the European, the British soldiers. You were particularly interested in the way they were talking about and depicting their Indian comrades, allies in, in that campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we went in not knowing 100% what we were going to find in those in those um, boxes, essentially. But what really came out was this rich photographic record taken by officers of the, the Indian soldiers that they were serving with, as well as some of their own countrymen. And some of the stories and the, the kind of journalistic type records that went with them, as well as, you know, some things that we still have need to do more work on, essentially. So there were some kind of Arabic intelligence letters that really need to be translated, uh, military maps that show the, you know, the, the climate and the, the, the location of Mesopotamia, the battlefield zones that, again, many scholars, I'm sure, would be interested in exploring further. But yes, those photographs are particularly fascinating. Uh, they showed conditions inside the fort at Kut, the camp before that, and some of the, you know, some of the relationships between the British and Indian soldiers, but also even the, the prisoners of war and how they were being treated. So a rich, you know, record that's been sat in Woodstock for a very long time. <laughs> you, George, also came across a very remarkable archive that's shed light on, on Indian troops in the First World. Tell us all about it. Well, Dan, my, my new book is called uh, The Indian Empire at War, From Jihad uh, to Victory, The Untold Story of the Indian Army in the First World War. And it's extraordinary that after 100 years, it's the first book uh, to tell the global story of the Indian Army in the First World War. And by global story and untold, it's important to recognise that beyond there just being 1.5 million Indian soldiers in the First World War, they serve more widely than any other army, with the Indian servicemen visiting 50 countries between 1914 and 1918. And in telling their global story, there's always been a big challenge in trying to understand what the Indian troops felt about serving the British uh, across the world. And the real problem with them has been that the vast majority were illiterate. So compared to Wilfred Owen and the other British soldiers, it's always been difficult to see what they felt because they didn't write it down afterwards. But I came across through my research uh, in the United States a 
large cache, a treasure trove of Indian veteran interviews that have been written down in the 1970s. And that's been a fantastic source, alongside all the others, where from MI5 or MI6 sources to German intelligence and many others, where people who met Indian soldiers during the war from 1914 to 1918 wrote down what the Indian soldiers they met told them. Well, this is particularly exciting for me because my great-grandfather was a medic with the Indian Army and he escaped. He got out just before Kut, the extraordinary uh, imperial reverse at Kut, uh, and so he was in Mesopotamia. So I'm definitely tempted to go back to some of his papers now and see if I can contribute to your, your project. But let's, let's bring you both in now. I mean, you... Well, this is obviously a ridiculous question, but on the whole, the Indian Army was, was serving the King Emperor alongside the uh, white British troops. Was there a recognition on... Let's start with the Indian troops, in as much as we can glimpse what they were thinking. Was there a sense in which they were they were willing, equal uh, comrades in arms, or, or that they felt that they were there under duress as a colonial and, and frowned upon, uh, or looked down upon force? Well, I think it's really important to uh, recognise that the Indian soldier was in a very different place to the British soldier, in that they're in a very delicate... Uh, position of being a, a colonial subject. And so there are people who didn't have the vote, who weren't, in, in most cases, literate. But at the same time, they have all these hidden feelings, which places them in a position where with, with the British as their rulers, they can't really say what they feel. But at the same time, they are alongside British soldiers. But they're alongside British soldiers in a position where they're viewed as racially inferior. And that puts them in a very, very different place. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think we have such an issue with the source material that is available that, you know, even where it's soldiers' letters that are in the India Office Library today, so much of it was censored material. You know, Indian soldiers weren't, you know, as George said, they weren't literate, so they weren't giving voice to their own feelings to the same extent that we, you know, British soldiers were able to do. And even that was, of course, problematic. And then, you know, as, as I found in, in the archives at, at the museum, you, you, you're getting testimony secondhand. So what the British officers are saying about how they think their troops are responding. And often, you know, it's not going to be testimonies of an individual soldier. It's going to be, well, you know, this brigade of Indian soldiers would seem to be doing okay, you know. Um, and interestingly, I mean, I was curious to compare to see if any British soldiers, infantry or whatever, rather than officers comment about their experiences of working with, with Indian soldiers. And sadly, I, I mean, I found one file of, of letters of a British soldier writing home to his family. But he openly said in one of his letters, I don't want to talk about the bloody N-word is in referring to the Indians to, to say that he, you know, he just didn't like working alongside them. He saw it as insulting. So, you, you know, it's, it's a really difficult minefield to, to step into. Militarily, excuse my ignorance, but there were obviously Indian divisions. I imagine it cut when things got tense, they everyone was sort of mingled in together. And But were efforts made to keep these military units quite distinct when they served on the Western Front or, or they served in Mesopotamia? Yes, they were kept very distinct. So on one hand, you've got the Indian Army, which is an army recruited and trained in India. And then the British Army is uh, separate and of course, recruited uh, in the UK. And they were kept separate in the field, but specifically for the reason that the Indians were seen as racial inferiors. And so by keeping them separate, they could be treated differently as servicemen under different terms of service with lower pay and, and other differences as well. And so by being kept separate, the Indians could be treated differently and therefore that helps the colonial rulers keep the Indians down. That's what they were doing. And we should say white officers, though. 
Yes, they did have white, white officers who, to keep the control of the Indians, had a culture of, of kindness. They, they treated them as well as they could, but with the, the crucial catch that they treated them as, as racial inferiors. So we shouldn't be kidded by uh, the old imperial stories of kind British officers who'd learned languages, who respected their men's uh, religions. There, there's a lot of truth in that, but we've always got to keep in sight that they treated them as racial inferiors. And I think, in fact, there's a danger of looking back on the British Raj or British rule and looking at the so-called fishing fleet of young women who went out to India to get married or looking at viceroys or looking at the white rulers. They were a tiny proportion of, of the people on the, on the subcontinent 100 years ago. And you've got over 300 million Indians and their experience is just as important to look at and understand. And that hasn't been done enough. From the remarkable oral archive that you've discovered in America, can we hear the voices of these of these Indian soldiers and, and how they felt about being regarded, for example, as racial inferior? Did they, did they know that? They, they were very aware, and that comes out so strongly in their interviews. And of course, with any source, we have to be careful. And a problem with oral history is always that the longer you are from the event, the less clearly you remember it. What comes out very clearly uh, from their interviews is how much they suffered as racial inferiors or being treated as, as, as that. And in their oral histories, they talk about a curtain of fear existing between them and the British. And that's really looking at, at life in the First World War very much from their side. And in general, they talk with the wisdom of age about, their, about the world war of their youth and in lots of ways talk about what they learned about politics or, or fighting or other cultures and, but they do it honestly because they're, they're being interviewed in the 1970s. They're free men and they're looking back, understanding the world better and saying all sorts of things that didn't come through in their letters. Well, that, but that's interesting. You mentioned learning about politics and things. I mean, what, was, there, was there the contagion of socialism or liberal ideas from white troops they were working alongside? Because I've, I've recently did a podcast about the Chinese Labour Corps and there was virtually no interaction between... They were, they were kept sort of hermetically sealed apart from, from the ally, from European, uh, European armies that were, that were physically fairly in close proximity but could have been miles away because they were kept so uh, separate. Well, I think we've got to remember in looking at the Indian Army that there's... There's an interpretation which has been quite strong until recently about the Indian soldier of 1914 to 1918 being almost politically illiterate. But we've got to remember that if you look back to 1857, there's been a great rebellion in India and you look forward to 1947 when the independence movement achieves its, its great goal. It's artificial to look back and think that between 1857 and 1947, there's somehow a period where Indians don't have political awareness or aren't so motivated to achieve freedom. It's more that in 1857 there was a brutal rebellion uh, put down by the British with a great deal of bloodshed. And after that, there is, in many respects, a reign of terror in India. And you have Indian soldiers who are very aware of the political position they're in, but they don't talk about it much to the British because they've seen what happened in 1857. So in the First World War, you have Indian soldiers who are illiterate, but at the same time are politically aware, but they don't say it. What's your impression from the work you've done. I mean, you mentioned that one private soldier's letters from, the, from, from all the British sources you've looked through. How did they regard these Indian troops? And is there any sense that they were able to see beyond the kind of racial, ethnic stereotypes and form proper relationships, either professionally or socially? Absolutely. I think... Um I mean, we've, we've, you know, you hear countless stories that come out of this particular archive, but other archives as well. I mean, in in respect to the the records that I was looking at at Woodstock, you have the the regimental 
sort of diaries and uh, journals. And one of our volunteers picked up on on this particular issue in that some of the, you know, the sort of battalion heads would, would do- talk about the performance of the Indian soldiers and, you know, even Eurasian sort of labour corps with them and mention about actually, you know, they're not half bad. And, you know, I mean, kind of, again, as, as George was saying, this kind of racialized way of talking about people. But it was it was definitely of mixed opinion. So Captain Beresford Monday, who who was produced one of the best photographic albums that we had uh, with a commentary alongside of all of them, was not quite so flattering about the Indian soldiers as such. And I think potentially that might be linked to his experience at the Siege of Kut, where there was a lot of tension over rations and, you know, the, the whole thing about, you know, maintaining these privileges and the cultural dietary requirements of Indian soldiers was seen as becoming a military weakness in that, you know, Indian soldiers weren't going to eat, Hindu soldiers in particular weren't going to eat horse meat. But as their rations declined at the siege of Kut, there was no other choice. So all of these cultural factors did come into play and there were definitely racial undertones to them. You know, to what extent can you protect those Indian rights and privileges to keep this army loyal? But at the same, to keep them as a an active fighting force. But on the other hand, really, um, you know, is it is it a useful waste, useful use of your time, essentially? So there were, you know, there were lots of layers of this going on. But I think the elephant in the room was always this fear of rebellion, this idea that you know another eighteen fifty seven could happen again. So therefore, we need to hang on to this cultural baggage with Indian soldiers to keep them happy, to keep them loyal and keep, to keep them fighting. And also there's this, I guess, a racial overtone that this is the way they work as a civilization, as a people, that this, you know, they hang on to their religion, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, this is the way the Indian army, in a unique case, has got to operate. Yeah, because, of course, in the Great Rebellion, previously known as the Indian Mutiny, was was partially caused by you know the rumors around how the british how british food and logistics was going to interfere and indeed traveling overseas might interfere with with religious and cultural beliefs of the indian troops this this is the whole thing it's this this legacy i think is really critical in in this moment and i mean 1914 you suddenly see the army and and 1914 to 18 being dramatic the indian army being dramatically expanded and on terms that were quite a slap in the face to what had been the the way of operating that army since 1857 in that you've got two big changes taking place. One, Indian troops being mobilised. Well, no, three, sorry. Indian troops being mobilised on a larger scale overseas than ever before. Two, involving them then crossing that the water. Two, them being deployed against white European troops for the first time. And thirdly, the issue that they are also then deployed against co-religionists more on a larger and a more controversial scale against the Ottoman Empire, for example. So it's not to say that, you know, Indian soldiers, ha- Indian soldiers hadn't been used against co-religionists, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, etc., within the Indian Empire, but it's happening on a much larger scale. So you have to protect against that, especially with this legacy of 1857 and the thought that the ideas that were thought to have caused that rebellion, religious discrimination, not, you know, caste prejudice, etc., etc. So I think... You know, it's fascinating how that all plays into this worldview of Indian soldiers. And it doesn't do that in the same extent with a British Tommy. There's obviously class differences, but it's a weird, you know, cultural view around what's going on. Definitely. I didn't think about that. It's quite transgressive, isn't it? Trying to get an Indian soldier to bayonet a, a white Protestant German in the guts. That's, that is interesting. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Very stupid questions, I'm just going to ask. Um, how many of the Indian rank and file would have been able to speak English? Oh, not many at all, I would have thought. Not many at all. Yeah, I think only, uh, only a tiny uh, proportion. So actually, there are basic linguistic barriers between sort of fraternity to, to fraternity. And secondly, how was the Indian army expanded so rapidly? Is it, is it conscripted? Is it, how are so many men suddenly brought in? Multiple factors at play with this. You know, you've got your traditional recruitment network across Indian villages, uh, particularly in the north and northwest of India. Punjab, the Pathan regions, Gurkhas in Nepal and that kind of thing. We, you know, we, we hear those spoken of a lot. This idea that there were certain martial races in India and that only they would form, you know, your, your core group of people that you should recruit from. Essentially, your kind of loyal, hardy, uneducated village peasants and not Bengalis anymore after 1857. And nobody from a town or a city, absolutely not. They were far too dangerous at this time. There was a huge amount of propaganda poured into villages, uh, offers of better, of really good pay, of land grants, of pensions for your family if anything happened to you. You know, selling the adventure side of the experience of war without talking about war itself and especially the kind of industrial warfare that these soldiers were going to be going into. And I think... You know, that's that's very much at the outset of the war. And even Gandhi at this point is is happy for Indian soldiers at the very outset of a war to go because it's a thought that they will be supporting a democratic fight on the European continent and that they should be rewarded for this. Indians should be rewarded for, for standing shoulder to shoulder with Britain's, you know, and, and wider imperial subjects. But this does change over the course of the war, especially as it's, you know, the recognition hits that going to last for multiple years and the death toll is going to rise. So on the one hand, it, of course, increases the demand for manpower. But on the other, news starts to spread about just how bad this war is. And even with censorship and even with, you know, the literacy restrictions on soldiers writing home or trying to write home, 
the bad news of the war does start to get back. Um, you know, the injured soldiers and the fact that they're not going to be allowed to be sent home. They're going to be sent back into the firing line. This whips up a lot of mistrust, fear, anxiety within Indian people back home in those very same villages that they've been recruited from. And it makes the task of recruitment much harder. So, I mean, you know, as George's book does a fantastic job of showing, there are so many extra perks, I think, put on the table to get soldiers to come along. But there's definitely a carrot and stick approach there. There definitely were elements of forced recruitment going on and, and pushing people to go. A lot of peer pressure, you could say, essentially. George, how, how was the Indian army used? Because obviously there was this German pre-war fear that giant armies of, of Nigerians, French Moroccans, Indians would be deployed on the continent and they'd get, the, they'd get pe- people of colour to do the fighting the Europeans. And, and this was rather scary for the Germans who had access to fewer, uh, obviously no colonial subjects by the time the naval blockade kicked in. Um, so did the British ever think about that? Did they, why, did put, why not put an army of a million Indians into the field in, in France? Or, or was there this sense that like, we've always got to have a balance and we can't have too many Indians because of we're worried about sort of political disconnect? How, how, what, how did the thinking work around deploying the Indian army? Well, the the thinking around the Indian Army, it's often treated as if the war came in 1914, so the British uh, turned to the Indians once they realised they needed more men. But the the British general staff have been planning to use the Indian Army in in Europe since at least 1911, and it had plans to bring the Indians to Europe uh, immediately. So the cabinet, the British cabinet, decided uh, within 48 hours of the war breaking out that they were going to bring the Indian army to Europe. And they were able to do that because they had pre-war plans which allowed, allowed them to put Indians uh, on railways immediately and put them on the ships and bring them through Egypt. And that's why the Indians are, are able uh, to arrive in France ready to fight the following month. But more broadly, uh, the Indians were used to support the British Empire as a global power. That's the rationale for the Indian army, to sustain the British Empire. And they were fought to do that. So they fight in France to stop the Germans defeating the French, to stop the Germans taking over the European continent, becoming a a threat to British global power. And on the other hand, the Indians are used mainly against Turkish forces in the Middle East. And again, why are they fighting Turkish forces? It's to maintain British imperial security in the western half of Asia, principally to secure the outlying areas of India. Did planners ever go, hang on, we got, there's too many Indians on this campaign, we need a leavening of European units? I mean, was there, was there that kind of thinking around almost a sort of quotas or ratios? Well, there, there's a ratio within Indian battle formations that there should be one British soldier to every three Indians. And the main reason for that is that there should be a British soldier on hand if the Indians get out of hand. And so that ratio applies in every... Indian brigade almost, and then wider in the Indian divisions and so forth. It just goes up and up uh, throughout the whole army. For either of you, are there examples of the Indians going, thanks, I think we're, this is your war, we don't, want any, we don't want any part of this? There were surprisingly few Indian deserters, and that's mainly because, as, as we were saying, they had a lot to gain from military service compared to the opportunities they had in life otherwise and in many ways that was their great tragedy but there were indians who deserted and in several instances went into german service and famously there's one indian muslim soldier uh, called miramast who deserts in france and he he with some of the others of his his tribe the afridi from what, what is now pakistan they join german service and they join a german mis- mission to afghanistan to encourage afghanistan to attack 
the British. And he's, like many Indian soldiers, is highly politically motivated to fight for what he thinks is right, and he's prepared to do anything for it. We know that French West African troops were used, often posted, particularly at the beginning of the war, into more suicidally dangerous positions. Is there a sense that, in, in general, Indian troops were seen as easier to sacrifice than, than their white counterparts? No, I, I wouldn't agree with that necessarily. I mean, you know, as we've discussed already, there was a, a great deal of weighing up about, you know, how to deploy Indian troops. There was a lot of logistics around maintaining you know, as we said, their cultural mores and that kind of thing to keep them on side. If anything, you know, a lot of effort was deliberately made in terms of propaganda to to show just how well looked after Indian soldiers were um, and other colonial troops, even if the reality wasn't necessarily the case all the time, just because to maintain this morale, you know, across the empire. But of course, to, to again, stick it back to the Germans to show that you don't have an empire to draw on, and we do, and this is, it constitutes an important strength for us. So I think that's that is a critical factor that we have to bear in mind with all of this. There, there is the idea that the Indian troops were sacrificed ahead of the white British, but it's really important to bear in mind two uh, factors here. And, and the first one is where did that idea come from? And it came to start with from the Indians themselves who arrive in France in 1914, and they start writing home that they think they're being sacrificed ahead of the British troops. And that's actually not the case. It's just they're in a limited part of the front where they're the majority and they're covering a few miles of front. They don't realise there's another 395 miles being fought for by the British and French armies. And so they draw the wrong conclusion that it's them who are fighting more than white men. And so I think people have read their letters and seen them saying this and thought, is there any truth in this? And they've decided there is. But the second thing to bear in mind is that how did the Indians' commanders treat them? And on the Western Front... The Indians have a very interesting commander called James Wilcox, who's a, who's a man born in India in the 1850s, who's, who's spoken the Indian soldiers' languages since he was a boy, who relates to them very closely. And he was sacked in 1915 because far from sacrificing the Indians ahead of British, he tried to limit their use so that British troops were used more because he didn't feel the Indians had such a strong national stake in the war, as of course they didn't compared to the British. And so he cancelled attacks against the, the highest British general's uh, orders, that's Douglas Haig. And Haig thought Wilcox wasn't aggressive enough. He wasn't putting the Indians into battle. So he got rid of him to replace him with a general who would make the Indians fight more, and not just more, but as much as the British. I think the other thing we have to bear in mind with all this is that the cost factor to the empire, essentially, as a whole, and where the money would come from to pay for the troops. So, you know, obviously we, we see issue with, with recruitment in Britain. Yes, mobilising Indian troops is going to help with the wider war effort. But there's a, especially when you come to the Mesopotamian front, you know, the, the Iraq campaign, there is actually a struggle between the home government in London and the government of India in India itself, arguing about who's going to foot the bill for the Indian soldiers, essentially, if they're going to be deployed in such large numbers. So I know, of course, it boils down to the treatment of soldiers as well. They are sent in on the cheap into Iraq. But it was a case of if you're going to deploy Indian soldiers overseas, you have to pay them extra bonuses because it's not part of their regular job. And then there's the other security implications about how are we going to safeguard India in the meantime? Because this, you know, imperial army was being used to look after India's borders, etc., and to quell 
unrest within the within the country itself. So on the one hand, you know, you're you're focusing on the German enemy, you're trying to maintain strategic interests by quelling trouble in the Middle East, but you have got to make sure that the, the running of Indian uh, society and its empire is one financially sound, which the government of India was worried would be damaged by sending these troops in, but two, also that there's a risk of rebellion in India itself. And I mean, George, you mentioned about the, the sort of a 3D rebels, but also, you know, you, you have the Gadar rebellion, uh, which takes place at a global level, you know, an anti-imperialist revolutionary campaign uh, launched pre- predominantly by Punjabi ex-servicemen and also nationalist intellectuals who were globetrotting, you know, revolutionary plotters, essentially. And you do see the stirring of another mutiny in the, at the early stages of the war. So, and this leads to widespread, you know, repression of civil rights in India. So, these are all calculations that are going on behind the scenes with with all of this. I, th- I think it's really interesting. You mentioned there the the Gada rebellion involving ex Sikh servicemen, and there's a very interesting point that the Indian uh, Victoria Cross winners have received a lot of attention. But if you look at them, you'll notice there isn't a single Sikh Victoria Cross winner. And I think what that reflects is that Victoria Crosses, alongside, of course, reflecting unimaginable bravery, also they're a statement. Who gets them? And in the Indian Army, the Sikhs are not given one. And I think it's important to remember that alongside how difficult Sikhs are perceived by the British. And there's an argument to say that the British didn't want to give the Sikhs a VC because they were seen as so politically difficult. Um, are we in danger of the most unpopular thing I have ever said in public is that many soldiers enjoyed the First World War and that destroyed my Twitter mentions for about six weeks. So uh, look forward to doing, look forward to doing that again. Uh, are we in danger of? I mean, I'm really interested just just from your archives. Is there a feeling that the Indians are the, are the victims that they are induced to come to this war often using a little bit of forced recruitment, but and actually don't. Whereas you can argue some of the white troops do sort of experience things, see the wider world, have a good time. Do, is, is the same true of any troop? Do you talk to any, did you look at any in the archive where actually you said, yeah, it was a time in my life and I met great mates and saw the world? Well, Dan, in, in many ways, that's the central question that my, my new book looks at because it, it's, looking at, it's looking at the British soldier alongside the Indian soldier and comparing them, how similar were their, were their experiences. And it's important to remember that 100 years ago, the Indian soldier was seen as as racially unequal. But, of course, they need to be understood today for what they were. They were human beings just as much as the British soldier and in many ways experiencing and feeling just the same things. So you have Indian soldiers, and it's important to remember, fighting in 50 countries, fighting around the world, and they do so in many ways just like the British soldiers do. So they, they, they can fight just as hard, they can desert the same, they can run away from any enemy fire the same. So, of course, while we're careful about saying that people enjoy fighting, we should remember that everyone fighting in the First World War was a human, and across the armies, they almost always did it in the same ways. I definitely think you can see the positives, you know, the fact that Indian soldiers got to travel, they got to see the world. You, you see a lot of that in those India office letters that still exist, where soldiers are talking in very interesting terms about what they've learned about the wider world and it's how it's changed their perception about things like the treatment of women, about education, etc. And, and, you know, and quality life, I think, in a, in a different kind of a village. But I think we also have to be very careful about what the silence is, you know, what we're not able to get access to. I mean, as, as I think you found in your own research, Dan, shell shock, the impact, the, the devastating impact of the war, you know, and its trauma on, on ordinary human beings. 
you see soldiers that are just as young from India going to serve as you did with British soldiers. And those traumas are not recorded in the same way, even though they're so difficult to get hold of for British soldiers. In some ways, you see these things reflected actually in folk song and in folk memory, particularly the, the songs sung by Indian women that have been passed down to us by, you know, generations of researchers, but just, you know, family members. So the work of scholars like Amajit Jandan, for example, that have looked at Punjabi um, wartime songs that speak of loss, that speak of trauma, that speak of forced separation, powerlessness and all these kinds of things, you know, with husbands going off to fight in Basra and France. And I think there you see in those kinds of songs an element of a political awareness too, even amongst women who, you know, if you think the soldiers were illiterate, the women were probably in a much worse position. But you see how these become embedded and you know how they circulated within a folk memory that's that's still forgotten now but it, you know it was obviously prevalent then and, and understood on their own terms in a way so you know even if there are just fragments that we have to, to grasp onto I think they're really crucial for us to understand that this really did have a traumatic impact and, and that's why we have to recognize it as a world war. I think in, in understanding and getting to know the Indian soldier's story, it's really important to remember that we're dealing with a world war here. And I think 100 years later, it's important to recognise how much the First World War was very much like the Second World War in being fought by pretty much the same powers. You have the Japanese, uh, the Russians, the French, the British, all with, with very similar uh, imperial territories and fighting over the same oceans and, and the same land, largely. So in understanding the, the Indian soldier's experience... It's so important to see how they go to different countries and can have different cultural experiences, can acquire new ideas, and then go home and relate those to their families and see the new world after the, after the war. Of who are they? What political rights do I deserve? What do I want for my children? And there is the war of, of politics and the war on the battlefield, but it's important to remember there's also the social side of the war. And you've got a million Indian soldiers overseas experiencing foreign cultures, getting new ideas that were like primary education from French villages. So we've got the political, the military, but also the social. And then we can do another podcast soon, guys, on the gross betrayal of those Indian troops when the British withheld their promises of political reform after the war. Thank you very much. That was a, that was a fantastic trip through the Indian Army in the First World War. What is your book called? Uh, my book is called The Indian Empire at War. And how can people follow your project and follow your work going forward? Well, the project is now finished, but I would strongly encourage anyone to get in touch with the Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum at Woodstock. They are continuing to do some fantastic work relating to Oxford and the World War. And I hope in the future they will continue to make use of that amazing archive, funding permitting, as of course, with these things, to, to do another exhibition, hopefully on Oxfordshire and Empire as a whole, because uh, what we really did find was not just stories from World War One and artefacts from World War One, but showing the connection between Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire soldiers with the Indian Army and that empire for a much longer period of history that remained to be told. Thank you so much, guys. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.